Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. I'm a licensed marriage therapist in the state of Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist. You can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com. Now, today I am interviewing Ellen Ranny, <laughs> not the wrong way, and uh, Dr. Ellen Ranny, marriage and family therapist in St. Louis since 1991. She's a specialist in trauma recovery, working with complex PTSD and dissociative disorders. And she's the author, if you want to show the book, since we are on film, of Unkind Gifts, an insider's guide to recovery from trauma and loss. All right. So Ellen, like, tell us a little bit about what you do day to day. Well, initially, I think it's important to know I'm a marriage and family therapist. And the training that goes into becoming a marriage and family therapist is about family systems. Mm-hmm. And that basically means all the relationships that contribute to or put pressure on or in, in whatever ways they affect the people within the relationships. So within mm-hmm. a family, we might be talking about job stressors. We might be talking about... Um, Things like uh, economics, of course, mm-hmm. uh, certainly fairness within the family, how mm-hmm. how the parents and the kids interact, for instance, or whatever generations we might be working with. Mm-hmm. But also, I often look uh, and find <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that a big part of what's going on is some trauma in the background, mm-hmm. um, often related to uh, some sort of event or uh, an abuse or neglect environment that might have contributed to the problems that are turning up in their relationships. One thing I want to add, because I'm also a marriage therapist, so mm-hmm. pretty strong, uh, part, close to my heart uh, topic. Um, so one of the differences that some people have uh, have not known um, who, who might be listening is that there's a difference between like a family therapist or a marriage therapist and an individual counselor. And a lot of it's in our training. Yes. So like you were saying, we're looking at the bigger, broader system. We don't see a person as living in a vacuum, but we're like, no, you kind of interact with these other people and things in society. Right. <laughs> and so even as we do our treatment, we're not just looking at you all by yourself, including with trauma. Yes. Uh, we're looking at how trauma is being impacted by the family, how trauma is impacting the global system. And we go like so far in systems because we're just systems junkies. Yes, we do. <laughs> that we go all the way up to society. That's right. <laughs> and so what are some of the things that um, what are some of the things that you're seeing come up that are um, families are struggling with when it comes to trauma? Well, often it seems that there has been a situation where the the mother or the, the a female partner in that relationship has had losses in their own life, mm-hmm. maybe based around exploitation, maybe based around grief, uh, often based around shame, mm-hmm. which uh, is usually an indication that something happened at a very young age because kids are very egocentric. And mm-hmm. so when something goes wrong, they blame themselves. They take that on as their due. Mm-hmm. as if they had somehow deserved it. And generally, that's not true. Kids are pretty basically uh, in good shape when they start out <laughs> and the things that go wrong. you there's nothing wrong with kids? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, I tease uh, you. Yeah, but, um, but I think that it becomes more of an issue because of the, um, the feeling that they're not worthy, that they, for some reason, didn't deserve to be treated well or that they did deserve to be harmed unto them or they made a mistake and it became a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think of something, actually, so I should tell you all this. Ellen is actually my supervisor too. Um, so we have some inside stuff that we talk about and then mm-hmm. there's like the outside global mm-hmm. stuff. But one of the things you did mention to me in supervision once was that there was a difference between big T's and little T's. Yes. Um, so T's are referring to 
of trauma, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that Yes, for the listeners? I think the majority of people hear the word trauma and what they're thinking of is big T because that's what we hear about most often, say, combat trauma, you mm-hmm. know, from returning veterans, uh, rape trauma, um, child abuse trauma, which, mm-hmm. um, as I said, is often what's, what I'm working with, um, and neglect. Those are kind of the biggies. Maybe uh, environmental disaster trauma that mm-hmm. we'd add to those big T's, um, you know. Uh, the hurricanes and the damage done from floods and things like those, those could be on that big T trauma depending on how it worked out. Mm -hmm. Now, little T traumas are more like those relationship hurts, those feelings of shame, uh, having uh, been put down for maybe an an act or a statement. uh, Or even being bullied or something. Right, absolutely. And when it, you know, it builds and builds in a situation Mm -hmm. where there's something ongoing like that. And the more those little T's add up, the more like a big T they become. Mm -hmm. So that the the reaction becomes more and more of a, what you would call a dissociative process, sort of disconnecting, denying, moving away from those uncomfortable feelings that come out of being treated as less than or as unworthy. So how does that show up in people's behavior? What does a big T look like versus a little T? Big T's tend to be strong enough, especially if they occur at a young age, mm-hmm. that the uh, the ways of coping become pretty um, very much around dissociation, which is moving away from our feelings sometimes, and especially when it's uh, what we call complex trauma, mm-hmm. uh, when it's happened over a long period of time, and especially starting at a younger age, that form of dissociation will be a, a very complete dissociation, a loss of even awareness of some of the functioning that, that they're doing. So they might, you know, the old word for it was multiple personality disorder. Well, we These, don't believe in that anymore, right? That's not necessarily a diagnosis. It's not in the diagnostic manuals anymore. Instead, we have dissociative identities disorder, which is essentially... The same thing, only it's recognized as a much more common event than Mm -hmm. was ever given credit before. Also, people would be surprised how often people are, someone's out there functioning beautifully and and as leaders maybe in their community Mm -hmm. who have dissociated parts that they keep tucked away. Um, But under stress, those become less manageable. The other thing about, you know, responding to trauma is that often it is so hidden away that we... um, Find we react to people, we project things, we react around a felt injury that's too close that reminds us too much of that earlier vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes the big relationship problem. Thus, we see them a lot in, in a practice of marriage and family therapy. One thing that actually Ellen's taught me, but that I wanted to kind of restate. Um, so when, for example, when somebody reacts and they seem to react in a very big way that yes. doesn't make sense to the context of the situation, sometimes it's one of those T's just exploding. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of, I call it the mushroom cloud. All right. So when something happens that's upsetting, maybe you had traffic issues, you know? <laughs> well, I actually have a lot of rage against traffic. Let's There's be fair. <laughs> uh, other things that feel threatening to us, um, but maybe aren't, you know, Universal threats are not huge, you know, that they're going to affect our whole lives. But the reaction, the initial reaction can come from that kind of explosive Mm -hmm. response that has to do with emotional injury that's been tucked away in a dissociated place, but it's still there and it still circulates. And as soon as it gets an opportunity, (laughs) when it gets an opportunity, bang, it pops out there again. And sometimes we don't even know we're doing it ourselves, Mm -hmm. but you can see where that would be a real problem in relationships and 
Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why that's good. Like, so most of you who are listening have probably heard the word trigger come out. Absolutely. So the big T, little T, I think is a newer uh, way of framing that. Mm-hmm. But um, the trigger is essentially when, you know, you're in that argument or you're just driving in the car and suddenly something there explodes and you want to follow that person and make sure they get to their location safely. Right. <laughs> something like that, I think. That's exactly how I feel during road rage. You, everyone else, right? Of course. Of course. <laughs> well, so like what... What kinds of things do you do to help people to work through some of that trauma? So often it's uh, because it's tucked away mm-hmm. and as a way of coping, as a way that we manage our lives and so that we can go about our day-to-day lives without being, you know, carrying this thing yeah, right on it's our protected. shoulders. <laughs> Very much protected. So um, what I want to do is listen to what the patterns are, you know, okay. where they're running into trouble, say, in a relationship or you know, whether this is working with an individual or a, a couple or a family, where are the stumbling blocks? And a lot of times that'll come out in terms of emotional language where there's such a strong sense of insult or injury because of something that was said or something that happened. And again, it's that big mushroom cloud kind of thing. It's like, wow, that's a very strong reaction. And yeah, I can see where that would be hurtful, but it seems really kind of out of proportion to me. Mm-hmm. So that's a place I'm going to kind of pay closer attention to and try to engage around that conversation of when, have there been other times in your life that you felt so strongly about that sort of a thing? Mm-hmm. Have there been other times in your life when you felt betrayed? And usually there's a yes in there somewhere, sometimes not. Uh, and it begins to make sense after we do that a few times that those elements are still um, in a place where they're not processed, mm-hmm. where they're still creating issues for us. And that's the the trail then we might go down and learn more about it. I see. So you kind of start to pay attention to patterns where it's showing up so that you can find ways to help them either identify it or work through it in some way. Yes. What are some of the things that help them, like when they do start identifying those patterns, what actually helps them to start to... Well, I guess take a trigger or a trauma from an explosion to more of a, mm-hmm. I guess, thought out process. What is the end goal for that, actually? Well, what the end goal is, is to uh, come to integration. So when the information that's stored in the system, in the body, uh, is not well recognized mm-hmm. or is denied or is pushed away in some way um, with sometimes some very dangerous kinds of habits that we keep things away, you know, with food or with uh, with addictions of various sorts, those kinds of things. Or maybe rage. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's Road the, rage. Maybe that's I think that it's really driver. helpful. <laughs> I did send my friend a text saying, I feel like I have some unbridled rage somewhere yeah. in here. <laughs> Something's going on. So it's good to pay attention to it. I'm aware. So what I would have you do then, Angela, when you came into my office and told me about that, is I would say, so when have you felt that way before? When have you felt that hopelessness Mm. or that threat? Whatever. You know, I appreciate you, you just put it there with hopelessness and helplessness, okay. Ellen, because I've been, even with my clients, I pay attention to this. Where does the anger and the rage come from right. for people? And it is often linked to these feelings of helplessness yes. or hopelessness associated with whatever that explosion is. Right. And I see that going across in the family and into society as well in terms of like life situations that have happened recently. Since this one is coming today, I'm going to do a little diversion. Okay. But yeah, this it. weekend, um, 
there was shootings, yeah. uh, two different really big shootings, and that's a societal trauma. Absolutely, um, it impacted the people that it that were in that situation, but it also impacts people globally. And I wonder, like, what what trends do you see when something like this occurs? For how people, I mean, how do people work through <laughs> that kind of trauma? Yeah. So I've heard it said, and I think it's true that all trauma is relational. Okay. And uh, since our relationships expand and expand out, as we talked about earlier. Um, the when a, when a threat or a disruption occurs, mm-hmm. it, it moves throughout those different systems. So I might be turned, you know, I might turn to, oh my gosh, you know, that time when a friend of mine got hurt in gun violence or some form of mm-hmm. violence. Um, someone else might be thinking about a different loss that they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's their personal story is the thing that seems to send the energy up. And so I'm going to backtrack a little bit of because, course. as you know, my training, uh, my, my kind of postdoc training was in internal family systems therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's the, um, that is where we take that systemic idea that we talked about that goes out globally, you know, culturally and globally, as well as in the, the, the individual relationship, to also to our relationship within ourselves. And internal family systems is of the belief uh, that we all have these, we have a a tendency that, um, a quality that is known as multiplicity. It's not multiple personality disorder, it's that we all are made up of many parts, Mm. physically, emotionally, spiritually, in lots of different ways. And those different parts have different ways of responding. So when a trauma happens, they will go to the parts that have the the buy-in to it, that have an experience that relates to it somehow. Mm-hmm. And so you asked about how I would address it. My tendency then as I learn more about it is to say when that thing seemed to happen to you in the past, whatever sort of resonates here, you know, who was there then? How old was that kid? Do you get a sense of what they might have felt at that time? And when we do that internal exploration, the, the key, the hope and I think the, the real healing element is to develop compassion for oneself for when I was a kid and I was hurt or when you had an experience that was very um, isolating and upsetting and see then how that does parallel or reflect back and forth between these larger traumas that we recognize in the society and our personal experience of it. I want to do a little bit of reframing because okay. I personally, so I was trained at times in IFS, mm-hmm. but I remembered having trouble with the whole parts stuff. Mm-hmm. So I found new ways to see it, sure. even from our work, but also from when I first learned about it. So for those of you listening and who are like, what do you mean? Like I have a bunch of personalities? No, that's not what's being said. But the way it's kind of looked at to me is it's like you have multiple hats, right? Like mm-hmm. so, and we've said that in like careers, right? Like so, one hat's your mommy hat, and one hat's right. your, um, one hat's your uh, your hat in the career, and one hat's here. But then also one of the things that I think that you're kind of pointing to is that even at different times in our life, there's there's parts of us or hats or person. I don't know if I want to say personalities, but spaces within us that kind of get stuck there yes. actually mm-hmm. right that like so like when one of those little traumas or triggers pops up then it's it's like you go back to that space in that place mm-hmm. where you felt that thing and you don't feel like you've moved and a lot of people who talk to me about trauma feel kind of like they're stuck yes. in that space it's very common yeah well and that's where the hopelessness comes mm-hmm. from right because it's like 
oh, this thing hurt me. I, I didn't feel like I could move or do anything with it, and now I'm stuck. And so you moved on because you still have to move on in life mm-hmm. and live your life. But when it comes up again in these little ways, like maybe the trauma that's occurred with the shooting or when um, even like a trauma with a boyfriend or a partner comes up, then you suddenly find yourself stuck again in that way that you felt when you were like five or yes. six and you were bullied or somebody hurt your feelings and you didn't feel like you could advocate for yourself or do whatever it is you felt like you wanted to do at the time. Right. Yeah, parts language is is tricky for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it's it doesn't matter what we call it. Sure. Uh, we actually physiologically store particular information, especially when it's not processed well. We will store it within our central mm-hmm. nervous system, within the brain, and there's a whole set of nerves that run through the, the heart and the gut and throughout the body that's uh, called the polyvagal system. Mm-hmm. And it... Uh, kind of is in charge of our security. It assesses the security of the environment way before the brain is aware that something's going on. I mean, it's just, Hmm. you know, milliseconds. That's why we say trauma is stored in the body, essentially. Right, exactly. And the way that then is stored and the way you access it is to get kind of to that place. So for me, it's important to check with the body while we're doing these explorations. Um, So you might call it a part that's an emotional part that holds something, yet it's a piece that is probably stored within uh, certain aspects of the nervous system that is holding this sense of threat or or, um, evaluation of an insecure situation. And that's what then feeds us, allows us to kind of develop those files that tell us how to go through life and how to relate to experiences and to people based on what we've learned about them from early childhood on. Mm -hmm. And then the ultimate goal, to your point then, is to become unstuck, to be able to maneuver in a way that you want to now, now that you're not a five-year-old still kind of crying in your room or whatever, you know, but Mm -hmm. like you're an adult who wants to make choices and feel proud of them. (laughs) Well, I said the word compassion earlier, and really what that's about is being aware, first of all, tuning in. And a lot of us have been taught not to pay attention to what's going on in our bodies. So uh, true. Especially <laughs> trauma survivors, especially survivors of sexual and physical trauma are taught not to connect uh, and emotional as well. Um, but with without that connection, without a, that awareness, it becomes harder to track what's going on with these uh, big trigger responses. Well, and to your point there, I think that's a protective mechanism too, right? Like they've been taught not to track that because at times it wasn't safe to do so. Exactly. And I would say they don't they don't even have to be taught. That's what this whole polyvagal system thing is about, this nerve that comes down from the brain and moves all through your gut. And when you hear about gut intuition and things like that, we're talking about those that nervous system stuff that goes on in our body. And as I said, it also is a place where things get stored. So when we apply compassion to those things, when we get to know them, that's when we have a chance of actually integrating that information, which means that stored, separated emotional experience and physical experience can be opened up, can be released to a certain extent. Our awareness of it increases. We have more kindness toward ourselves from it, and we're in a more integrated state, less likely to react to that guy who's driving and funny in front of you. That I really don't react that poorly to driving. <laughs> Actually, driving is my most relaxed place. It's society. <laughs> it's, it's the rest of the world. It's messed up. I know. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, because I do want to get a little bit into your book, and I'm mm-hmm. keeping a little bit of a mind on the time. I'm curious, you know, I know your book's about trauma too. So like, how does, how has this played into either your trauma work or even just your own experience with trauma? Well, one of the things that didn't come in on my 
uh, intro is that I am a survivor of breast cancer. So 20 years ago, I had just finished nearly an entire year of treatment, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation to, um, and just was getting a little bit of hair back um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> at this time, uh, exactly 20 years ago. So um, that was a pretty traumatic event. Uh, and yet, it was really clear to me that it was because I could feel so much that was similar to what I had heard from clients about mm-hmm. sort of being outside of myself and, you know, the just perspectives that came with it seemed to fit a lot of what I was hearing from people who'd been through trauma. And yet I didn't feel there at that point there wasn't much recognition of things like medical trauma, which is actually mm. a very large issue, really um, something that we become much more aware of. So my experience of trauma then, one of the ways I could sort of make sense out of going through it was that, hey, I have this insider information about what trauma is, and I have the experience that I'm living in, and through that and through working toward recovery, I might learn something. I might have something valuable to share. So it's kind of how I made sense of all that. When you say medical trauma, are you talking about the experience of going through cancer or are you talking about the medical field and professional actually traumatizing you in some ways through that process or is it a mix? (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So tell me more about that. I'd kind of like to learn a little more about medical trauma. You know, uh, there's a lot of variations on it and there's some work being done by um, a guy named um, Peter Levine and he... uh, has for a long time paid attention to the body and to the uh, animal mm-hmm. uh, studies and responses from animals. Um, and he talks about how uh, there are these natural responses to trauma that have to do with um, stopping, uh, kind of burying things for a while, holding still for a while, and then doing a recovery process from that where you sort of get back to your body and can get back out there. So um, it has to do with moving through things. Um, So for instance, the gazelle that gets dropped by the cheetah. I don't know if those animals chase each other or not. (laughs) Let's just assume (laughs) for this story that a cheetah Uh, is chasing a gazelle. (laughs) (laughs) So when the cheetah gets close, the gazelle will drop because they go into this system that shuts things down that actually, even though the cheetah hadn't quite touched them yet, it was inevitable. And by dropping, they go into maybe a, a place where perhaps the cheetah would lose interest because it looks like, oh, it's it's already dead. It's not moving anymore. I don't want to take dead, you know, I'm not going to eat dead food. Um, or they might go find the cubs and teach them to feed. So there's a break in there. But um, in that moment, there's a chance to for the gazelle to come out of their stunned state and shake it off and begin moving again. And so the importance of being able to move through from something that has stopped you in your tracks is the point here. Um, He says that's where trauma occurs is when you can't keep moving, when you get stopped. And every time you try to come back and address it, you've hit the same roadblock and stop again. So in terms of medical trauma, one of the things that turns up often is uh, use of... um, uh-huh. and anesthesia, and being uh, it stuck in a particular position, not capable of expressing anything or, or asking for help or, you know, oh, okay. and just, so basically, though there may be a sense that you're unconscious and you're not taking anything in, your body is definitely there, and there are processes that are taking place during that time, and those can then become experiences of having been, you know, uh, prevented from moving mm-hmm. and going through something frightening or painful, maybe, 
if, depending well, on is. the degree. Yeah. Uh, certainly during recovery, uh, we're coming out of those things. There's a lot of pain if you've been in a, any surgery ever. So when you're unconscious, you're still technically conscious. Yes. Or at least your body is. You're taking in your information. Brain. Right. And it's a nervous system, right? It doesn't have to be consciously aware of what's happening. It's just processing. It's just taking in certain information. And so that can be a place where there's a problem. Now, there's also uh, sometimes some fairly callous um, healthcare workers. And um, I know uh, there's so, so many people with their hearts in the right place and that are really doing good work. But yeah. there are the occasional problems. And um, for instance, someone who discounts your experience uh, rather than see that you're struggling and maybe be genuine with you and stick around long enough to talk through that a little bit. You mean bit. like saying, calm down, what's wrong with you? Yeah, something like that, <laughs> something like that. Or like, uh, why is this such a big deal? You know, anything that's sort of dismissive when right. you're saying, no, this is kind of a big deal and I'm scared and yeah. I don't feel comfortable. Yeah, another place that I've been hearing about lately and really, uh, again, had some experience with is uh, trauma in the birthing situation where yeah. sometimes the arrangements are so much to accommodate the doctors that they discount the mother and the mm -hmm. wishes of the family and things like that. And that's a very frightening and painful time to be in. Anybody who's <laughs> given birth can tell you about that. And to then be discounted in that or to have, say, a, a, a birthing plan disrupted and not get some kind of support in, uh-oh, we have to change that, and here's why, and this, you know, we're just mm -hmm. trying to help, versus what I had said to me, which is, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, <laughs> you know. Who said that to you? A, repl a replacement doctor who came in to fill in for my doctor, who I'd worked out a whole birthing plan with, but the timing was off, so I ended up with a, a partner in the practice who said that to me, you know, uh -huh. while doing things that I hadn't planned having uh, happen in my experience. Mm -hmm. And so things like that, you know, that, yeah, I got through it, you know, but again, um, there are there are those moments and they stick. It's almost like, um, like a photograph, like a little instant photograph gets taken of those moments and they stick in our, in our nervous system. Well, I think that's why they turn into rage, to be right, honest. Right. Like if you feel these little moments of helplessness or like your voice doesn't matter again and mm -hmm. again and again, you get you get rage, you get right. outrage. And, and I sometimes wonder, like, you know, when, when we look at people, oh, you have an anger problem, you have, mm -hmm. you have some control issues going on. It's like, well, to what degree is that stemming from trauma? Right. <laughs> and yes. since, like little moments where you felt helpless. So like by the time they are exploding, it has a result of maybe years of countless not yes. being heard and understood or valued. Right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I wonder if that's why a lot of angry, the angry women are around. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot more of that now, but I, I think that has to guys. do with a lot of things. And, and you know, uh, you know, it's hard enough being the person behind the, the road razor, but also uh, to have a history, a long history of this complex trauma, like we talked about earlier, sort of lifelong exposure yeah. to things that you don't want, to feeling helpless, to not being able to fight back or to be punished or disbelieved, all those things add up to that need mm -hmm. to kind of isolate the information. However, life go continues, and sure. again, over and over again, you're being exposed to situations where there might be reason for anger, or there might be feelings of helplessness, or maybe there's outright, straight-out exploitation going on, mm -hmm. as in trafficking situations, for, for example, that we human hear a lot more about mean? human trafficking, sex trafficking, those kinds of things that are going on all around us that we don't know who's suffering in that situation because again they dissociate mm -hmm. and in that case it's often an intentional program by adult organized abuse so 
What's a, what is that? So that <laughs> is like when a team of adults, or in, often knowingly, have a system for, for instance, breaking in children into a sex trafficking oh. field, or adolescents who maybe have run away go through this period of accommodation, and which has to do with a, basically torture and rape and assault that would leave these young women uh, vulnerable and um, make it less likely that they're going to fight back or seek help because they feel like the whole world is set up around this dynamic of you don't have a choice. This you just have is. to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, and you know, to be fair, going back to your medical trauma, I mean, med- medical professionals are in a position of power. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times I think patients don't feel like they have a right, uh, you know, like they, they don't have certain rights to advocate. Like they feel like, well, you know, there's this sense. It's interesting because I see two things happening. On the one hand, I see medical professionals who are really trying to offer more choice um, and take a recognition for the fact that they're doing that, that, that they're in a position of power. So they don't want to like, uh, they want clients to feel more in control of their situation, but I right. still see an old world style of like, this is the authority and you have to listen to what they say. And if, um, you know, like they have the final say and not the patient, but it's like, it's my body. It's it's what's happening to my body. Even when it comes to a surgery, you know, for example, mm-hmm. you were talking about going through cancer. I'm sure there were a lot of treatments to consider. Mm-hmm. And from what I've gathered from all patients that I work with is the more choice, the more in control they are in that process, even if they're about to undergo a type of trauma or traumatic treatment, it's still better to be in a position where um, you feel in control of that versus this is what the doctor says and you just have to do it because they're the authority. Right. And there's even this pressure of, you know, don't be a bad patient. You know, you need to have a good attitude if you're going to survive this. Mm. Things like that that puts, and it's, it's well-meaning. It's well-meaning, but it does mm-hmm. cause problems. You know, people then, again, lose their voice, their ability to express what they need in a situation. And it, it's very isolating and, and can feel um, um, really frightening. And again, more more dissociation, more need to separate, more more need to step back away from that feeling just to function, just mm-hmm. to get through. So what kinds of stories did you put in the book? Or tell me more about what is in the book. So <clears throat> the way I set up the book, I wanted to have uh, stories that, you, that people might be able to relate to. But in our field, we don't get to talk about our, our patients a lot, you know. And to mm-hmm. say much might be um, identifying. Yeah. And we are responsible for confidentiality for all of our clients, patients. Um, so... Instead, I thought, well, I had the experience, so why don't I talk about my story and my journey toward recovery as sort of the stepping stone into the different chapters? So I start with a little bit of that. I also did a lot of artwork in my recovery time and since because I think that's an important element, which I'll talk about more later. So I've got bits of that in there too. And then just trying to uh, put out the information in a way that's as understandable as it can be for general readers rather than just the professional readers, which seemed like the only trauma resources that were around for a long time. So trying to make it um, accessible and kind of friendly. So So there's stories and images. Yes. Where do the images come from? They're all mine. I drew, okay. I drew ex- except the front cover, which my wonderful artistic sister did. Uh, <laughs> I did all of the art inside because it's very personal and it has to, it relates to different times in my journey or different images that would come to me after I'd spend time, say, um, sitting meditation or doing yoga or something that these sort of, and to me that felt like little bits of integration where it's like, oh, 
I get it, you know, and then there'd be an image that I could then kind of try to create in mm-hmm. a sort of a medium way, uh, with never perfect, but something that would express what I had. We're not seen. judging your pictures, no. Ellen. <laughs> I'm good with it. I'm good with my art. But you know what? It's interesting you bring up those images because it sounds like that's a way, maybe that's a way to access some of those parts that you're talking about earlier that sometimes become stuck. So, yes. how have you used art personally to help? I guess get unstuck yourself at times. <laughs> That's a great question, and it and it really does lead into kind of the point of the book, which is to explore in as many ways as you can, and okay. so to approach the the concerns in a way that you know, gee, what is going on with me? What do I need here? What has happened that's that's been hurtful? And mm-hmm. and what might I need to know about that? So those are kind of questions I ask myself internally, as I would ask a client to check in their own system, um, and from that then some sort of an answer, some sort of an image or an idea often will emerge. And so to take that image or idea and express it somewhere Mm. helps to bring it to a place where there's more understanding and an opportunity to uh, possibly move into integration, which is kind of the point of any therapy, is to get to a place where the things that are kind of disconnected in us find connection and we can live with the sad and the loss as well as the joy and the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so art is a wonderful way to express that. Writing can be an, a wonderful way to express it. Movement is very important to a, to expressing and to working with trauma because, again, it has been stored within the body. Mm-hmm. So, so things can, like yoga or dance have been often important. used for therapeutic yes. uh, resources. You know, I've definitely right. heard about that. And it sounds like Another way of putting it is it's a way to honor the experience. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And kind of hold it in a, a special place, which mm-hmm. I guess is what honoring would be. Uh, maybe because you hung it on the wall or you put it in a portfolio or, or you shared it with someone. Those are all opportunities to, again, say, hey, this is me. This is my experience. Here's how I understand it. Mm-hmm. And that can be very meaningful. Well, and it, it brings me to some words or phrases I've heard from my own clients, which are, I don't want to be defined by this trauma, but I do, like in honoring it, you still it's still a part of who, who you are and it's a part of your life experience, but you don't want to be defined as in like, I'm this traumatized person. I am, I am my own person. So I, I think it's a way, when you use integration, to me, it's almost like a, it's a way to kind of come to peace in terms with it, but to not feel like you're stuck there and you have to hold that as like, this is who I am and I have no other pieces or parts of me that, right. I don't know, exist or count. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so because then it feels like you're a victim forever as opposed yeah. to I want to be in a place where I can look back and say, I got through this. I am a survivor. I've made it through and I can move forward from this point. Uh, because you don't want to stay in that trauma. That's a that's a very uncomfortable place to stay. But you do need to maybe spend some time with it in order to move beyond it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I was just on Facebook this morning because that's what I do, you know. And there was this one post that reminds me of this. It said that um, she sat with her anger long enough to realize that it was actually grief. <laughs> I yeah. just thought it was such a good. And there were like two souls sitting next to each other. And of mm-hmm. course, the grief one was a little more in the dark clothes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. That makes sense. So you kind of have to sit with some of that anger or trauma to kind of get a realization of what it is. But then you have to express it somehow so that it's not just like stuck there or you just feel lost like a right. forever victim. That's right. Exactly. I actually have a picture in here about how some of my parts work together to get me through the cancer, just, you know, image-wise. And and there was a very angry and kind of, you know, tough part <laughs> that was that showed up in there, you know, wanting to kick some butt because, you know, she was pretty pissed that we had She's this going on. Probably a kick-ass gal. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it's sort of like 
you know, one of, I don't want to say I have favorite parts, but it's one of the, it's a part mm-hmm. of myself that I really rely on is this part, this aspect that says, hey, I'm not tolerating that, you know. It helps me set reasonable boundaries. It helps me mm-hmm. recognize when I need to move away from a situation or when I need to move towards something and address it. Because, you know, sitting with feelings, it, that's not a new thing, right? That's, that's yeah, called meditation. Yeah, we're supposed to do that. That's called meditation. In therapy, they encourage it. Yes. <laughs> and by sitting with it, it tends to transform as we understand it, as it gets the attention and hopefully the compassion or the witnessing that is part of that. So in the book, I, I kind of broke down the recovery process as uh, an acronym called FLOWING, so the word FLOWING. And it stands for to feel, as we've talked about in the body, to listen in a way that's broader than just auditory, you know, that really gets the meanings. To open, which is compassion, you know, open heart, open understanding, you know, space to learn about things without judging it in advance. Witnessing, so that's the flow feel, listen, open witness. Mm -hmm. And I added ing because that's kind of what happens with that process and what needs to happen following it. So the I is integration. So by doing that practice of flow, we come to a place where things can integrate within our mind bodies. Uh, And that needs to be nurtured. So there's the N, to to have a nurturing practice, to spend time uh, revisiting, uh, to make habits that are self-care based, that are uh, maybe expressive, maybe, like we mm-hmm. talked about artwork uh, or dance or the different things we do, and really make those important, make those a part of our practice of taking care of ourselves. And the last letter is G, which is generativity, and which basically is a fancy word for creativity and going forward and contributing to the world. So we generate new energy by having gone through this process of recovery. Sounds like generous creativity, yeah. which I also like. Right. <laughs> yeah, generous is definitely part of the same word. Yeah, and hopefully that's where we get to when we're less reactive to other people. People, we can be more compassionate and more generous in our thoughts toward others. So, Ellen, we're towards the end of our uh, show for today. Mm-hmm. I'm totally like a therapist, even in how I do the podcast. You're like, we're hitting them. <laughs> Are there any final thoughts you have, either about trauma, about your book, or just that you want our listeners to kind of know either about you or about life, making it really broad in general? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Save the world right now. <laughs> yeah, right this minute. Well, we talked a little bit about you know how, how difficult it has been in the in the real world this weekend with a couple yeah. of shootings occurring, many many people harmed, and a larger level of what mm-hmm. we'll call trauma that's taking place around our country, certainly as well as others. Um, and there's just this idea that if we could address the trauma and know it, we can be in a stronger position to uh, to take on our losses and to move through those without being completely shut down, but also to reach a place that's more compassionate, that uh, helps us to be aware of our environment and about of the people around us and maybe limit some of the acting out and the reactivity and the mm-hmm. big mushroom clouds that obviously would have been a part of what went on with shooters who would decide to arm themselves and walk into a place and and harm people they don't even know, mm-hmm. and even their own family in this case. So um, that feels really important to me that more people pay attention to who are we as a society and how does our trauma then play out and how is it affecting us all and, and all the people around us? Because we're all we're all in the same boat, right? We're all floating on the same sea here. And if we don't take care of ourselves and each other, then uh, that ship's going down. 
Thank you, Ellen. That's really well put. And thank you very much for showing up to my podcast today. I'm so happy to be here. So, again, it is Ellen Ranny. Sorry, did I say it wrong? You said it right. Oh, Ranny. God. Oh. Okay, and her book is Unkind Gifts. And um, you have been listening to www.aboutsexpodcast.com. You can also find me at my website, www.therapistinstlouis.com. Wait, is there a website you want to plug here before I finally finish? Yeah, my practice website is stlcounselors.com. And I also have a Facebook page for Unkind Gifts and uh, other um other options, a, a website as well. So it's always important to get a plug. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and oh, then of course, um, can I say it's available on Amazon? Am yes, yes, of course, it's available, it's available on, Amazon. on Amazon. Please purchase it, <laughs> of course. Um, and then of course, I have my books, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity and Premarital Counseling: A Guide for Clinicians, both at Amazon as well. So right. feel free to email your questions to aboutsexpodcast at gmail.com and we may just answer them online. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. Stay kinky, St. Louis. <laughs>